From pitch side to print to the press box above Providence Park. It's Jamie Goldberg from the Oregonian and Richard Farley from the Portland Timbers and Thorns. This is Soccer Made in Portland. On the scene, all the time. Welcome, everyone, to Soccer Made in Portland. Uh, Monday morning, we're recording a little bit early this week so we could talk to Mark Parsons uh, right after the Thorns game last night. So we'll talk about that. Uh, Mark Parsons is on the podcast. He'll be on a little bit later. Before we get to that, uh, I think we're going to talk a little bit of Timbers, hopefully. Um, we won't be as uh, as depressing of a conversation as last week, maybe. <laughs> I guess not. I mean, I don't think of that as depressing, but maybe I should. Maybe that's part of partly my problem. But, you know, not much has happened in the last week. But one of the things that we didn't do was look forward to the game this coming Sunday. Timbers, LA Galaxy, the Timbers get back on the field trying to get their first win of the year. And, yeah, Jamie, I, I don't really know where to start on this. Uh, what do you think are some of the biggest questions that we have right now about the Timbers? I mean, I, I think we talked a lot about it last week, but I, I think the big thing is the game is whether the defense can put in a solid performance, what the lineup information is going to look like, and whether that group or, or that formation and style play is what the Timbers need to sort of um, start moving in the right direction. Uh, I think those are sort of the biggest things. I, I mean, is this going to be a good performance? I mean, like, it's not just the defense, as we talked about. It's the midfield. It's the attack. Are we going to see a solid outing from the Timbers that shows signs that they're beginning to turn in the right direction? But defense is definitely the number yes. one priority. As we've said many times, 10 goals allowed through three games kind of speaks for itself. I know there have been a lot of questions about the attack, but honestly, right now, the defense has to be the number one priority for this team. Um, I think what's interesting for me is the mood around the team right now. It's very much, with a slight increase of urgency, it seems pretty steady. Uh, the guys right now act like they've been through this before, and they have. We've talked about last year so often. I don't know. Is that a good thing, though? Should they be feeling a little bit more urgency? Should there be a, a little bit of panic right now? Panic, probably not, but should they be approaching that? Should they be more concerned? It's always interesting because you never know if what they're telling the public, what they're showing outside the locker room, reflects what's going on in the locker room. But this is a pretty composed team right now for a team that has one point and has allowed 10 goals. Yeah, I mean, I think over the years covering the Timbers, that's sort of what I've noticed. Every time this team does sort of either go on a run where they're playing really well or when they go on a run that's not so good like this, it it does seem they come out of practice the next day and they look composed, they look... They're, they don't look too excited or, or too down. And I, I think that's just sort of the mentality, mentality you need as a professional athlete. I, I don't think that's a bad thing. Um, but there certainly needs to be a level of urgency, and that's something they're going to have to show in this game. Because, you know, waiting another week, um, we talked about, I mentioned last week, how, you know, maybe the easier game for them to get their first win is going to be San Jose, another team that's struggling the week after. But this team doesn't want to wait another week with another poor performance and just have those poor performances adding up. I mean, there definitely needs to be a sense of urgency going to LA. I guess that's hints at, hints at something that I've been tossing around in my mind these last two weeks regarding the Galaxy. The Galaxy clearly aren't a bad team, particularly talent-wise with the names on paper. I don't think they're a particularly great team. Uh, I don't think they've shown us anything this year that makes us think that. They've had some good results, some bad results. Their attack looks decent, uh, but it's hard to get a gauge on that because Zlatan Ibrahimovic hasn't been healthy. Um, Roman Alessandrini hasn't been healthy. 
um, they haven't faced the most incredible of competition so far this year. I don't think they've had a win that makes us go, whoa, the Galaxy are capable of doing that. I think this is a winnable game for the Timbers. Uh, But at the same time, clearly, Cincinnati was a winnable game. Colorado was a winnable game. To me, the opposition is almost less of an issue than the Timbers themselves. And it kind of goes back to what we are hearing from the guys and the coaching staff over and over again. It's concentration. It's uh, these moments, trying to keep collected in these moments. And if they don't do that on Sunday in the Galaxy, they're probably going to lose. And if they do do that, I I think they've got a really good chance to win. Yeah, I think you mentioned, um, you know, we haven't seen the Galaxy's best team yet. Are we going to see the Galaxy's best team Sunday? Zlatan, um, everything we've read in the media is that he will be back in time for this game, or that was at least a hope. Uh, Alessandrini was supposed to return to full training this week. Does that mean he's ready for the game? Um, and how do those kind of <laughs> change this game for the Timbers if both of those guys are in there? I mean, Alessandrini is somebody that is one of the most difficult wide matchups in the league. And of course, uh, Zlatan's goal record last year his production speaks for itself so it changes the game hugely if those guys uh, if those guys play and it makes it more incumbent that the Timbers have a way to actually control play and um, beyond just being better defensively given Galaxy the fewest opportunities that they can controlling play in midfield being better going forward all of these things will contribute to it uh, what do you think Jamie I think you know those players their names speak for themselves as do the production they've had in Major League Soccer. Yeah, I I think this Galaxy team is dangerous, especially when they're at full strength. I, I, I don't think this is... I mean, I think any game in Major League Soccer is winnable. I think the Galaxy are not going to be as good as, as say, LAFC. Um, but I think the Galaxy at home, they've won both their games at home so far. Uh, with their best players on the field, even if the Timbers were playing well, I, I don't think you'd be going into this game saying, yes, the, they're, they're going to be able to win this. I, I think it is a difficult uh, matchup for, for them if uh, the Galaxy is at full strength, and especially right now with how the defense has been. When you look at the players in that Galaxy attack specifically, that's, that's going to be a real, real challenge for the Timbers after the way they've been playing. And that's what it all comes down to. We can sit here and try to provide context on the biggest issue or talk around it just for the sake of filling time it all comes down to that defense and I don't know that we have a lot to add to it because until we see the team back on the field it's all theory it's all hypotheticals right we kind of get the feeling that with Larry Smabiala red um, serving a red card suspension or not red card two yellow cards he's going to be out so I think the general feeling is that Tuiloma and Cascante, although Claude Dielna is, is an option there too. Um, do you want to take Tuiloma out of midfield when he performed so well in midfield against Cincinnati? I mean, for me, I think I said it last week, I would go with Tuiloma and Cascante. Confidence in Cascante is really low amongst the fan base right now, but is it any higher in Claude Dielna after yeah. the Cincinnati game? I'm not really sure. Yeah, uh, Andrew sort of asked that exact question. I think a few people did. He wants to know who starts at CB. Uh, center back and, and how badly are the Timbers going to get Zlatan. Um Yeah, I, I think I'm leaning towards Tuiloma and Cascante. I, I say yes, the, the Timbers should uh, take Tuiloma out of midfield. They, uh, Savarasi pointed to Tuiloma sort of being a vocal leader in that midfield and that being something that he liked in the last game. I, I think you want that on in your center back. Um, you want one of your center backs to be that vocal presence. If Tuiloma can do that, that makes a lot of sense to have him there. I didn't see anything from Dielna that makes me want to see him necessarily back in a game where the Timbers need to turn things around defensively. I think Cascante hasn't been that bad this year, even even though I, I think 
because of some big plays he's involved in, um, it's really easy to point to his mistakes. Uh, but I, I think specifically this year, we've seen, we've seen up inconsistency from him. I, I think of those three, I, I agree. I would go with two Loma Cascante. I, I think that leaves some questions open in central midfield. Um, we've talked about them going to the four, three, two, one potentially, which would change things a little bit. Um, It'll be interesting to see if, you know, Paredes is back out there instead of Guzman. Um, I, I don't think we've seen anything from Guzman uh, on the field that, that makes us really confident, at least me really confident in his performance right now. At the same time, I don't know what he's looked like in training for the last two weeks. But Sarvesi did say point to Paredes and to Iloma's performance in Cincinnati as, as sort of positives overall in an otherwise uh, fairly negative game. Uh, so I wouldn't be shocked to see uh, Paredes back out there. Uh, and in terms of if they get Zlatan'd, I don't know. I think that's uh, – if the defense plays like it's been playing, yes, they're going to because Zlatan's too good of a player to, to not take advantage of that. What do you think? And at the same time, I mean, Zlatan, the position that he plays, the style that he plays – that hasn't really been the problem for the Timbers. I mean, Kai Kamara scored yeah. that goal, but it was a goal that, like we've talked about so many times, wide to, wide to in play, a ball fired across the six-yard box. Adi didn't really wreck the Timbers that much. Um, we saw that Adama Diamande had put up some numbers when he came off the bench against LAFC, but that was the same problems that we've kind of talked about before. I, I don't see the way that Zlatan plays as being any more or less dangerous uh, than these other players we've talked about. I think the, the way the Timbers have been exploited, it's less about getting Zlatan than just doing the same, making the same mistakes that they have had before. And in that way, I'd, I'd worry about Chris Pontius too. I'd worry about Emmanuel Boateng. I mean, these players are going to be dangerous if they're able to get into wide areas and beat people. I mean, there's a lot... There's so much to talk about with the Timbers, it feels like, in their defense, and it feels like we've talked about it so much, but... You have to worry about Rolf Fleischer, their right back getting forward, who had a really good game against Minnesota. I mean, it just comes down to the same things I think we've been talking about these last couple of weeks. The errors that they're making in these moments, particularly in the white areas, if they take care of them, then, then I think we can worry about whether getting Zlatan is a thing. But the defense at this point, in terms of the results... You have to worry about so much more than Zlatan at this point. And I think that maybe is the, the biggest indictment of how the Timbers defense has been performing so far. Uh, but you you mentioned kind of going forward, Paredes, Tuiloma played well in Cincinnati. Diego Chara is going to be coming back for this game. I don't think it's a big stretch to say that he'll be in the starting lineup. Yeah. <laughs> um, first of all, let me ask you, how are you going to react if the team sticks with the 4-2-3-1? I, I, I mean, I, I think... You know, there, there's sort of a, maybe a reasoning why you would want to maybe stick with that formation. If you're really set on that being your formation, trying to solve the problems within it, it makes sense. If you don't want to try to do a Band-Aid approach, you really believe that this is the formation that's going to get you the best results in the long term, Definitely. and you just want to work through that. So I, I think I will understand if they stick with that, but I, I think, you know, Savarasi showed last year that he's willing to switch formations, and given the performances, I, I think right now the team does sort of need the back line to be protected a little bit, and, and so I think I'll be more surprised seeing the four two three one than if we see the four three two one. So if the Timbers went to four three two one, who are the three that you would start in midfield? I mean, I, I think that I, I think. Based on performance, I wouldn't be surprised to see Paredes in there, and I wouldn't be surprised, obviously, Diego Chara will be in there. I think the question then is who that third player is going to be. I think 
a likely option is that they would just drop Polo back. Um, but it could also be Andres Flores. And Polo um, has been away from the team this week. Uh, mm-hmm. So, I mean, maybe that factors into it. Uh, these players will obviously be coming back, but since they'll be coming back late and, and sort of missing that training time, um, given sort of the performance of the previous weeks, maybe Sarresi goes with someone who's been here uh, for for this full two weeks and really has been in training in that circumstance. So I could see Flores, but I could also see Polo. Who would you start though? Who would I start? <laughs> um, I don't know. I think I think I think maybe it would make sense to give Flores a chance. Um, he's been in training. Uh, he hasn't really had a chance yet. Like you said, he can he can play a role. I, I think Polo has shown showed well in Colorado um, in sort of more of an attacking role. Uh, I think he showed okay last year in sort of a more defensive role. He showed he could play that, but that's not his natural position. If you just need someone to go in there to sort of protect the back line, I think maybe Flores makes the most sense. Interesting. Yeah, it, to me, given how Christian Paredes played in Cincinnati, and to me, maybe this is just my memory being weird, I thought he performed well when he was thrown into midfield when the team played a or three two one last year, or five three two last year. Um, I think that makes sense. Chara makes sense, but unfortunately, the player I would kind of most want in midfield, if those two are there, I would want Tuiloma sitting yeah. with those two above. I, I really do think that Tuiloma in defense makes a lot of sense this weekend. So once you get beyond that, Flores to me makes sense too. There's part of me that wants Zambrano in there, but at the same time, Zambrano, Chara, and Paredes. I don't think that's necessarily the best mix. You don't really, um, beyond Diego Char, you don't really have like a true ball winner and you don't want to just isolate Diego Char to just a pure ball winner's role. So I don't know. It's um, a lot of interesting options, but having to pull Bill Tuiloma back to defense, I think that that's going to be a bigger thing, I think, than um, maybe has been talked about over the last couple of yeah. weeks. Losing his option in midfield is interesting. Um so we're kind of building off of a question from Nick here who asked, what starting 11 would you like to see next week? The positions that we haven't talked about are fullback and uh, the attackers. Nick also asked, any younger players, uh, Langsdorf, Luria, or Zambrano, in that mix? So, yeah, start wherever you want. We have to talk about the fullbacks and the attack at this point. Yeah, I, I think that uh, I, I think that I want to see Zarek Valentin still in there um, because I, I think... I think he's played better than Jorge Vifania, and I also think that just that vocal leadership is really important, and he can bring that. Um, and, and I would really like to see Maria sort of have his de- debut because um, I, I think we haven't seen that option. That was the Timbers' most exciting signing that they made over the offseason. If he can bring something different, maybe that's what they need at this point. Uh, and since the turf was a problem in Cincinnati, that's the understanding is that's why he didn't make his debut there. There's no issue with that in L.A., so... I would like to see him in the lineup, and I, I will sort of be surprised if we don't. Um, in terms of the attack, I didn't think Milano or Espria. <laughs> we'll get into talking about Espria in a different way, but I didn't think either Milano or Espria showed much in Cincinnati, um, I, so I wouldn't have either of those guys in the lineup. I'd go back to having Jeremy Abobasi there. Um, I guess if we're looking at the four-three-two-one, then the rest of the attack sort of solves unless you t- want to take Diego Valeri out. Um, after the break, I don't. I don't think this is a week that he comes out of the lineup. So I would expect Blanco and uh, Valeri to be in there. Yeah, that's what I would do. I would have a Bobasi up top with Blanco and Valeri behind in a four-three-two-one. Uh, but the big debate, it seems like, out of all of that, is at left back. Would you go with Viafania or Valentin? You obviously made your opinion uh, known, and I mean, I can't disagree with that. To this point, 
Uh, I think Zarek Valentin has been fine. I think, like you said, there are things beyond his pure physical skill set that make him a desirable inclusion in any lineup at this point. And if communication and organization are part of the problems at this point, or just intensity too, uh, Zarek Valentin, his leadership, his ability to communicate with everybody, to me is very valuable. You kind of hinted at it though, Diego Valeri, you said you wouldn't take him out, but obviously this is something that I don't think a lot of people are talking about, but more people are talking about this, Diego Valeri's performance over the first three weeks of the season. What do we need to see from Diego Valeri on Sunday? Yeah, um, we need to see something different. I think that Valeri will, there will be games this year that we don't see Valeri, and that's not because he's not a huge part of the lineup. It's because he's going to need more rest, I think, to make sure he's in a situation where he can go through the entire year, hopefully, playing his best we haven't seen his best in these first three games he's lost the ball too often so he needs to be much better with the ball and he needs to he's been dangerous on set pieces that he continues to be perfectly fine taking corner kicks taking free kicks Um, but we need to see him creating more chances and just being less of a liability on defense I I think the expectation is that he's not going to be a a huge defensive presence and I I think the Timbers can work around that Um, but he can't be turning over the ball he he can't be completely a liability in defense uh, from that side I also just pivoting back uh, with the younger players Mm -hmm. I, I think that there are players that have shown well at T2 obviously I don't think you throw a younger player into this type of game. I, I don't think you just throw them in. I think you hear coaches say this. Um, you don't want to just say sink or swim into a game where they, they very likely won't do well. And I, I don't see uh, this being the game where the Timbers have been playing so poorly that you have a risk like that, that both could sort of hurt the younger player's confidence, but also putting them into a situation where they, you need a result uh, and not necessarily knowing what to expect. Over the last few weeks, though, I've developed a theory that kind of runs counter to that a little bit. I mean, maybe I've shared this with you off air, but I'm going to put it on air now. I think one of the issues that the Timbers have had over these first three weeks is that everybody that's in the lineup has kind of been here before, and they're able to kind of roll with these punches a little bit. And Like we talked about at the beginning of the show, is there maybe a lack of urgency or uh, I don't want to say complacency, but there's, there's a comfort that comes with the experience of knowing that you've been here before and you can respond to these situations. Another way to put that is that these guys, the guys that are playing right now, they know that their their livelihoods, their identities, their careers aren't on the line in these games right now. When you're younger, though, when you're a younger player, you're fighting for your identity all the time. You're fighting for your future all the time. You're fighting for your career at all times. And if you look across the Timbers players... There's Jeremy Abobasi and Christian Paredes, maybe, if we consider him a starter at this point. But there, there aren't a lot of young players that are in there really fighting to establish themselves at this level right now. I, I sense that fight from Marvin Loria. I sense that fight from Renzo Zambrano, from the list that we read here before. Um, would some of that urgency help the Timbers right now? Having people that are there that, you know, maybe maybe there is something valuable to rolling with these punches, but maybe there is something valuable too of just saying, screw this. I am not so established in my career that I can just roll with punches at this point. I've got to do something. And so that's what I'm, I've been wondering when I look at these players who I feel like I've defended some of these talents for a year and a half on the show. Hey, these are good players. And we've had a lot of debate over the last year and a half. Okay. If they're so good, why aren't they getting chances? Should they be getting chances? I think some youthful energy in this team right now 
you can argue it at least would be a positive. And for you, I, I mean, do you, what do you think uh, in terms of Larry um, and what we need to see out of him and whether he should be in the lineup this weekend? I think you continue working through the problems. Uh, like you said, or you've alluded to this next stretch of a couple of games, Los Angeles, San Jose, you bring up San Jose because that looks like the best possible win on the horizon. These are places where that are shorter trips, grass field. Valeri has had success before. Uh, we remember last year that free kick in San Jose where he took three points for the team. Uh, these are places where Valeri is going to be set up to succeed. And after that, if it still doesn't come off, probably in a situation where you need to think about things a little bit. Regardless, I think they need to continue moving Sebastian Blanco to the heart of what they're doing in attack in, the, in terms of the transition play, in terms of what they're doing as far as playmaking and distribution. Uh, we've, we've talked about this for a while now. Sebastian Blanco is the best attacking player on this team. And uh, Diego Valeri can be the best player in any given 90 minutes. But for a while now, it's been Blanco. And so moving him towards the heart of everything they're doing just seems to make sense to me. Well, let's talk a little bit about a team that we don't talk about uh, quite so often. Uh, <laughs> the T2, um, they beat Las Vegas this weekend 3-1. to one. I, I think this is the biggest thing that everyone's been talking about this weekend, not, not because of T2 won uh, at, at home, so much as Darren Espria uh, scored a bicycle <laughs> kick. Dyron Espria, how many bicycle kicks has Dyron Espria tried during his time here in Portland? <laughs> I, I, I looked it up. I looked at the video. He has tried 7,312 bicycle <laughs> kicks. Uh, and you know what? I'm glad he has because there was awesome payoff in the second half on, uh, on Saturday. Uh, I mean, for people who haven't seen it, you just kind of saw it coming a mile away. Dyron just setting it up, back to goal, defender on his back, gets the ball where he wants it, bicycle kicks it into the upper left side of goal uh, as you're facing goal. And uh, it's been on, it's gone viral. It's been on a ton of websites. And congratulations for Dyron for pulling that off. Uh, and it, you just saw how happy his teammates were, Harold Hansen jumping on his back in the celebration. Um, so yeah, three, three to one victory for Timbers 2. Uh, whether that matters as much as Dyron's <laughs> basketball kick, I'm not sure. But uh, T2 is now tied at the top of the Western Conference after seven points in their first three games. And uh, for everybody that was out at Merlot Field, I think you saw that this team looks like it has just hit the ground running as far as building on last year. And, you know, just with the talents that they had available, Andres Flores and Dyron Espria, because it was the bye week, they went into the starting 11 for Cameron Knowles, Foster Langsdorf, uh, Foster Langsdorf, uh, Marvin Loria, Renzo Zambrano, um, Modu Jodamo, Roy Miller, all in the team this weekend. It's just a very talented team. And uh, I think it's pretty exciting that Cameron Knowles' team has got off to such a strong start. So uh, Andrew wants to know, and I, I think I made me debate with this premise uh, to begin with, but he, he says that given that Espria played for T2 this weekend, he would have guessed that, that Espria wouldn't be in the starting lineup for the first team next weekend. Often, obviously, players that play for T2 don't um, then play with the first team. Um, but he, Andrew asks, did Espria play himself back into consideration with his performance at Merlot, or did Las Vegas just make every, everyone look good? So I'm with you on the premise. Why don't you go ahead and explain that? Because yeah. I think that usually that, that, that's accurate, that if a player plays with T2, they're not really in consideration for the first team, but, but that's because of the time that they have to recover. It's usually these games are happening the same weekend. I think this was a great opportunity for Gio to potentially 
put first team players into T2, sort of see how they do in that environment, and, and then bring them back for next week. And in terms of rest, there's no reason why Spria couldn't play in LA. Uh, so I absolutely expect him to um, probably be on the bench if he if he's not on the lineup. As I said, I wouldn't I wouldn't play him, but uh, start him at least. Um, but I, I would expect him to be on the bench in LA. I don't think anything's changed there. Um, as for him playing himself back into consideration. I think T2 is a different level. I think it helps. I think it helps his confidence. I, I think that Savarese obviously probably has seen that goal, goal and, and watched his performance. I don't think it changes the, his performance in Cincinnati and the lineup that the Timbers should go with. Yeah, it certainly doesn't hurt to go down to USL and play well. But I think he would have to carry that performance into the next week of training, and then the team would look at the overall picture oh Dyron played really well on Saturday and he's followed it up by three really three or four good training sessions maybe we need to reconsider whether he's not going to be in the 11 we've seen enough at this point to make us think that he can improve on Cincinnati but I don't think that performance alone is going to change minds mostly because when first team players go down to T2 they should do well and Espria did this last year too he went down to T2 and put up really good goal scoring rates I mean he didn't have bicycle kicks every week in T2. But when first-team players go down there, when established MLS players go down there, you should look good. Um, just maybe not this good. Michael asked regarding T2, T2, what's the situation with the two young foreign players T2 sign? Any idea when we might see them? Well, one of them, Brian Hurtado, did get some time this weekend. Um, and he is going to... He has been around now for a week. Uh, and Christian Ojeda, the Argentine, is being... Uh, I'm kind of searching for the words here. Worked into the club right now. He's here. He's going to be starting to train soon. So that's the situation, Michael. Hurtado is in. Uh, he's mostly a left winger, but he can play anywhere in attack. A, a tall, very athletic guy. And then uh, Ojeda, I haven't really seen much of him yet, so I don't really have much of a scouting report on him at this point. Jamie, you want to go to some, to some listener questions? Yeah. All right, I'll throw the first one at you from Tim. Given his success with T2 and Milano's struggles, should Foster Langsdorf be the primary backup to Jeremy Abobasi? I, I think it's so tough because looking from the outside and seeing Foster Langsdorf and how he performs at T2, he, he, the obvious response is, why is this guy not playing in the first team? He, he's clearly good at, really good at T2. He scores all these goals. Uh, why don't the Timbers give him a try? And I think there's some... Um, there's reason to buy that a little bit in that, I, I mean, it would be nice to sort of see how Foster Langsdorf does at, at the first team level. There's also a reason that Savarese has throughout last year continued to say, I don't think Foster Langsdorf's ready. I don't think Foster Langsdorf's ready. I, I don't know how that's changed at this point or whether it's changed, but there's something that he's seeing in terms of um, in practice and, and how Foster competes against obviously first team guys that's making him make that decision. Um, T2 is a different level. We just discussed it with Espria. It's clearly a different level. Espria uh, has done really well at T2. He struggled to score at, at the first team level. So I, I, I think that's hard to say. I, I, it's something I wouldn't mind seeing. <laughs> it would be nice to sort of see Foster get a run and just see how he does given how well he's done at T2 and, and given the fact that Milano has struggled. Uh, but, I, I mean, I, I think there's a reason why Savarese continues to, to go with Milano over Foster Langsdorf. Yeah, I think you said pretty much everything I would have. Let's go to Hugh. As a former NASL Timbers fan and TA Desicorp member, I worry about our ability to keep pace with accelerated designated player and et cetera costs. With so many calling for taking the MLS breaks off, I worry. What do you think? Do you think this affects our current uh, player search. Yeah, I mean, I think 
um, he's talking about the fact that there, there's these calls to sort of, you know, let teams sign as many DPs as they want or spend as much money or, or sort of change the the mechanisms involved there. And there obviously has been more and more money going into roster um, into for teams to put together rosters with TAM and just the money that teams can spend on designated players uh, and the money we've seen teams like Atlanta spend. I mean, it's tough. The Timbers are looking to spend more money than they've ever spent on a designated player. They've certainly kept pace with other teams uh, up until this point. They were in the MLS Cup final last year, despite team, other teams like Atlanta or, or LAFC going out and spending a lot more money on their designated players. The Timbers have done quite well with players like Diego Valeri and, and Sebastian Blanco, um, and they've invested serious money in, into those players without necessarily investing the same amount of money you see out of a, a team like Atlanta. Um, I, I think that it, the Timbers, I guess, are in danger uh, of other teams sort of getting to a point where, where they can't keep up. Um, but I don't think that's from a lack of trying. I mean, we're seeing the Timbers looking to invest serious money in designated player. It, it hasn't panned out. Um, but that type of money that we've seen thrown around, uh, the numbers that have potentially been out there, I, I mean, that would still put them um, on, on not, the majority of MLS teams aren't throwing around that money right now. Yeah, let's see what happens when the uh, east side expansion opens up and uh, what that does as far as the club's buying power and spending ability. It might be a totally different world. I mean, part of why that east side was built is because Providence Park, being what it was, didn't have a lot of luxury seatings or uh, places to sell high-end experiences. So if that ends up being successful and it's going to take some time to pay it off, uh, maybe the Timbers end up moving themselves into a new spending bracket. But I think just in general, Hugh's concerns have to be kept in mind all the time because the buying power that these other teams have, you mentioned a lot of them, is always going to be a little bit of a challenge for teams like Portland. Um, and I think most teams in MLS are closer to Portland's level than Atlanta's level. But that's kind of how sports are in this country to a certain extent. Um, unfortunately, or I don't think it's unfortunate at all, we can't all be Atlanta United fans. And there's something, there's something nice about being associated with a team that has to fight certain battles. Well, I, to go to a different question then before we, we hit the next one on our list, just because it's related to what you just said, mm-hmm. Tom asks, um, I don't know how money works, but you think the stadium expansion is having an effect on the Timbers' ability to sign a proper defender, midfielder, winger, or striker? Is having, as in the current? I, I don't yeah, and I think that's been something that's been out there, so I think it's relevant to address that. that yeah. I've seen comments out there where they're essentially saying, um, Merritt Paulson and the, o- the ownership is putting all their money into the stadium expansion. That's why the Timbers haven't built the roster. So I, I think addressing yeah, um, I, your thoughts. I mean, I think I think you know as well as I do, Jamie, based on the contacts that you keep, that uh, the money being spent on the stadium expansion is not having an effect on what Gavin Wilkinson is able to do to build this team. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, I agree on that. I, I mean, the point you made that, you know, the stadium expansion could help in the future. I, right. I mean, I guess that it would bring more revenue to the club um, down the road. But, yeah, at this point, with the amount of money that the Timbers were willing to invest this offseason, even though signings haven't panned off, panned out, the DP signing hasn't panned out, and obviously that's a, another question about, you know, luring players to Portland, things like that, working with other teams, scouting. I think that raises a lot of other questions, but I don't think it's a lack of interest in spending uh, significant money. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, let's go to Chris's questions. Chris says, I know that Real Salt Lake ha- there has performance issues this year, 
But having so many homegrown players is a huge success in that area. How do we better engage our local talent to make this a more viable and effective way to build the Timbers and T2 teams? Yeah, I mean, I think this has been an issue for the Timbers for a while, trying to find homegrown players and uh, have those players go through T2 and ultimately earn first-team contracts. They've really only had two players, Marco Farfa and Foster Langsdorf, uh, sort of go through that route and um, Marco Farfan has obviously played a role with the first team uh, Foster Langsdorf hasn't I, I think we've talked about a lot that the Timbers obviously don't have as much um, the area in which they can draw homegrowns from it is, uh, makes it difficult that could change in the future we saw Paul Tenorio's uh, reporting last uh, last December, I believe, about MLS maybe looking to do away with homegrown territories. I think if that were to happen, um, then the Timbers really would have no excuse there. They, they would have uh, the same area to cover as any team, and it would all be down to their scouting and their ability to bring uh, players into the organization. I, I think that could help a lot. Um, but I, there's clearly the Timbers still need to grow this their academy program um, because we aren't seeing a, a ton of players making that jump at this point, And that does need to be better over time. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, the Timbers need to continue working on their Academy at the same time. You don't look around the college game and, or the USL level and see a lot of Oregon raised players that are dominating those, those games. I mean, it's not like the Timbers are missing out on players. Um, somebody brought this up to me like two or three months ago, uh, when some of this debate was raging, just said, you know, you don't look around and see, oh, how did the Timbers miss on that guy? That guy was right in their backyard. It is a major problem, like you said, the the lack of kind of um, human wealth as far as uh, soccer talent in this part of the world. Chris mentions Real Salt Lake. Real Salt Lake went and developed an academy in Arizona, and a lot of their talent came through that. So that's that clearly would be an option is pick some underserved part of the country and build an academy there uh, that has significant costs related to it. But at the same time, it has worked for Salt Lake. I, I think the unfortunate truth here is that, uh, that people are right, that it's going to continuously be a struggle and there's going to have to be some kind of new idea. It's not just about developing local talent. It, there is a real question as to even if you were incredibly efficient at developing local talent, how much local talent is there to develop? And is that enough to realistically sustain a team that has ambitions towards winning things in major league soccer? I don't know. Yeah. And I, I mean, I just don't think the Timbers have shown they're at a point that they're willing to just play, play the young players to play them. And I think Salt Lake has to some degree said, I, I think they've have some really talented young players that have shown well, but I think to some degree they've also said, we're just going to play these young players and in two, three, four years, we're going to be good. Yeah. And maybe, I mean, I think that's a debate too, whether the Timbers should do that. We see Dallas and Red Bulls also make it a priority to give their uh, academy developed talent routes into the first team but like you said as far as academy developed talents are concerned for the timbers there's foster langsdorf and marco farfan and quite frankly i i personally think amongst the fans and maybe i'm wrong about this there isn't a lot of appetite towards sacrificing results on the field to do that i think the timbers like the timbers fans like having a team that can compete or can use its resources to do that but but maybe i'm wrong about that um Let's go to Mark's question. I would like to hear what the ideal designated player would look like, age, position, ideal skill set, languages spoken, salary. Who fits this profile? 
Yeah, so it's hard for me to come up with names that fit this profile because there's so many there's so many potential names out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe you have a, a different view on that. Uh, I think that the Timbers are clearly have sort of looked at different type targets this offseason in terms of the ones that they were linked to. They sort of were looking at a younger designated player, and then they were looking at a more established player um, and where they were willing to drop a lot more money. I I think there are positives for going out for both. I I think given the the Timbers having sort of Diego Valeri, um, you know, getting up there in age, Diego Chara getting up there in age, sort of the core of their team is getting old. I think that ideally what I would like to see, and this might not be the route that the Timbers go, I would like to see a younger designated player that uh, is established enough that that it's not a super huge risk for the Timbers, but young enough that the Timbers could also potentially build around this player for years to come and and sort of form a new core uh, as they sort of phase out some of their stars that are getting older right now. Um, I, I think that if they want to win now, that might not be the option they go with, but it's certainly something they looked at. And and I I think it is important to have a player that um, can sort of be versatile in the attack to give options to different players uh, in different positions. I I think if they just bring in a designated player for it, that's fine, but it it is nice to have a player that at least has some versatility. Obviously in the midfield, what we've seen with Valeri and Blanco, that that versatility has been super important. Um, with those players being able to play different roles throughout the time that they've been here. Uh, I think it's a little bit different when you're looking at attacker, but uh, the Timbers certainly have looked for versatility. I think it's always good to have a player that speaks English. I don't think it's a requirement, uh, especially now with the the way the Timbers uh, sort of roster is set up. A a Spanish-speaking player, um, I I think, fits in really well here. Uh, I think that it's been easier for that adjustment for Spanish-speaking players because there are so many Spanish-speaking players, and obviously Savaresi, uh, speak Spanish. I, I still personally think Ford is the place to go with a designated player to drop that kind of money. And in terms of salary, if they find the player with the right profile, drop as much money as they think they, they can afford because um, it obviously doesn't count anymore against the salary cap if it's a designated player. And I, as we've talked about before, that's what we're seeing throughout MLS, more and more money being dropped on designated players. Age, you always want them younger, but I think generally you want a player right now that's closer to his prime uh given where the timbers roster is at so i would say somewhere 23 to 25 years old would be ideal position for me it's right wing but you can also play some other places based on just who the timbers have right now um ideal skill set for me i would like somebody who can bother teams with his other teams with his speed the timbers don't really have somebody like that right now where you just where when he gets on the ball, he's just uh, kind of like has a Michael Barrios type of effect where, you know, that wouldn't actually Michael Barrios would be a great fit on this team. But, um, you know, where he gets on the ball and you're just like, OK, this is going to be scary no matter what. So if you're spending for somebody at this level, you can go get somebody that's going to be scary. Uh, language is spoken. I agree with you. And salary, again, lower the better. But obviously you pay what you can at this point because it's only going to have the same slightly over, over $500,000 hit to the salary cap. So I think that. In general, you and I probably see this the same way where, you know, attack still does seem to be the best use of this spot. But again, who knows? In three in three weeks, maybe yeah. we'll have a totally different view on this. <laughs> um, let's shift gears now. Uh, talk about Thorns. Uh, we, I guess, have a longer section on Thorns today because Mark Parsons, uh, Thorns head coach Mark Parsons, was nice enough to come on and join us on the podcast this week. Uh, so we have someone's perspective that can give us a true perspective on what's going on with the team right now. Um, so let's bring Mark in right now. 
Well, thank you so much, Mark, for joining us. I think at least second, third year you've come on the podcast, uh, becoming a little bit of a regular <laughs> on the pod. Yeah, a lot more intimidating face-to-face. <laughs> it's going to be harder to dodge your questions. <laughs> I can't remember the last time you actually... Wait, I was about to say I can't remember the last time you actually dodged a question, but you actually do a really good job of dodging questions on a regular basis, so I want to give you credit for that. Yeah, only when Jamie's asking. She, um, she gets to it. So trying to learn. It's taken me multiple years, but slowly getting there. Um, well, I just wanted to start, actually. I don't, I don't think you're going to have to dodge this question. Uh, in Obviously, you guys are coming back for preseason, long off season. I wonder for you at this point, how how do you sort of balance trying to get a break in the off season and trying to you know get some time with the family, um, with also continuing your coaching education and continuing to learn and grow uh, as a coach? Yeah, I think starting with the most important, spending time with family. Um, we actually stayed here for Christmas for the first time. Uh, in a long time and my wife's sister came and joined us so there was there was four of us and those two weeks um, was probably the most time uh, that I've had with my wife and daughter uh, for a very very long time or forever the most contact the most days and uh, when we go back to England for Christmas it's chaos you know pulling being pulled all over the place and trying to see as many people and and the good part is I had a great time and appreciated that we actually spent quality time and it was uh, it, maybe it's sad to say this <clears throat> but it was for the first time it was really sad to come back to work in the sense of my daughter's getting older and older and she seems to have grown up so fast over the last six to twelve months and after spending every day with her back to reality of not seeing much of her and my wife um yeah it was the first time I was like oh, oh it's going too fast and I need more time with my with my family um so we we tried to plan and um and have obviously a few days in the next eight months where we can explore Oregon and Portland and and, and all sorts to to do that so those two weeks over Christmas was amazing um the off season is get the weekends back but it's Monday to Friday and it's very intense and especially the way it finished uh, outside of those two weeks at Christmas, uh, it was my most intense uh, off season. I think it was our staff's most productive off season. It's funny because after the 17 win, we you know we all set the task of being as productive as we could and not slowing down. And then the feeling of of, of a negative result in a championship game, you you then suddenly find uh, more room to try and be better than you didn't think was possible. Um, it's amazing what what defeats can do to, to, to people so the off, se- off season away from family um, was really really intense from from a work side and trying to uh, make sure we're preparing all the individuals that will return best way we can I remember one of our first meetings um, regardless of what we do in signings or, or trades or anything else we got a huge responsibility to support these players and make sure they all come back better and they all come back as, as better people and some of them need a lot of support, want a lot of support. Some of them um, need the opposite, and us trying to get that balance right. And then away from the team, yeah, it was um, a few other adventures on the coach education side and um, preparing for the draft and everything else. So it was uh, it was a busy one. Coach, 
biggest change to this preseason is that you guys are out here. You spent time out here last preseason too, but you're going to be out here in Beaverton for people who don't know yeah. what we're doing this interview. <laughs> in Beaverton, you're going to be here until the stadium opens up. Uh, how has that changed the way that you and the team go about your work? Yeah, I remember in, in January, it's always great to come out and um, see Gio and the guys. And, and um, I think that in the last 12 months specifically, the, the culture of the club is just driven towards a, an incredible place. And, and it's, it's cool to be a part of that. Um, seeing Gio and the guys is cool. But I remember in January speaking to Gavin for the first time and, and um, being a worry wart. I was uh, a bit worried about... You? No. Um, <laughs> a bit worried about uh, us um, having, I say, everything that that we normally have that makes being a Providence Park home for us in regards to offices, meeting rooms, prehab and, and all the stuff that we have um, because the club do an incredible job of, of supporting us in, in a really high performance way. And yeah, I was a bit worried. And then you come around to March and, and what Gavin and all, all the staff, um, Nick Mansuido, did to <clears throat> prepare for us to be here. And it's it's um, gone past all expectations. We have way more um, tools and ability, room to do our jobs to the best of our ability. Uh, so it's been fantastic. And then, yeah, it's going to be a few more speed bumps, I'm sure, um, because now now three full-time teams in the same building is new but the, the preparation that the Gavin and the staff did to make this um, ha- what they have and, and the, the feedback from the players right now because I'm sure they had the same anxiety as I did while it's exciting you still want and need the things that you've, you're used to to perform and they've got more um, currently got more than what they're used to and it's been it's been really really fun and more importantly, uh, always comes down to: Are we? Uh, are we? Have we got the environment to grow? Have we got the environment to push each other to get on the pitch, to get in the video room? And yeah, we've got that to to another level. So it's um, it's really exciting. And at the same time, some people said, you know, are we going to miss this when we go back to the stadium? And without doubt, we're going to miss being around uh, the guys and and the great staff that that we see here. But we're missing the staff at Providence Park, and we're missing our home uh, at Providence Park. And there's a nice surprise waiting for the players, which I can't wait for. Obviously, the new stand, the expansion, the other stuff around the stadium, but the work that they've done on all the changing facilities, the offices, the hallway, um, the meeting room. Uh, yeah, Gavin, Ken, Merritt have um, exceeded again. We asked for a couple of little things, and that turned into everything being redone, which is really cool. Um, we've, we've kept the players away and look forward to them being surprised in the future. No, I was going to mention, and you mentioned it, the fact that you're around the other two professional teams here constantly now, the uh, MLS team, the USL team. Do you feel, it's a weird question because I don't want to imply that you weren't integrated into the club before, but do you feel a little bit more involved in, does it feel more cohesive when all the teams are around each other? I think it's a give and take. Uh, I actually feel when we're at the stadium, we feel more part of the club in the sense of you're around all the front office staff, you're seeing ticket staff, you're seeing so many people that uh, you get to see on before or after game day. And out here, sometimes it's felt a bit isolated from that. At the same time, from a performance side, to be in a bit of a bubble away from um, the rest of the club, I'm sure is a, is a healthy thing. And then on the, on the soccer-specific side, yes, to be around... Um, more. Co- I mean, I'm, for selfish reasons, to be able to pick all the coaches' brains. I just caught up with Cam this morning about their win and Aspria's goal. Uh, <laughs> being able to pick all, all their brains in in a formal and informal way, 
Um, you know, it was the, the way the schedules work with all three teams. It's tough, and and now we're, you know, we're in the I'm in the locker room having a chat with Gio about what he's planning to do at the weekend or what we're trying to do in preseason at the moment, and, and the opportunity to, to get into that has been has been super cool. Uh, you mentioned Asriya's goal, so I just have a question on that. It sounds like you uh, were out at the T2 game live. What's, what's it like? I know you go to Timbers game as well. What's it like being out there um, watching you know, the, the other teams live? And then uh, that goal, uh, where, where does that rank I, on the I, goals I, you've seen live? Yeah, I start with the goal. I just saw him at breakfast. I don't think he knows who I am because I walked up to him and said, hey, man, I just, I've got to come here for a sec, come here. And he looked worried as hell. And, and I said, I've got to be able to tell my friends and family that I hugged you today, so give me a hug. Give him a big hug, it, and, and it was. I, I know what those hugs feel like when someone has no idea who you are, and it's so awkward. There was nothing back from him. Um, I think I got a smile at the end and told him how special that goal was, and and my light, my view for it was as he struck the ball. It was almost I was right behind the ball, and it was going in a straight line to the top bin. Um, it was great to be out uh, support T two, um, support Aiden, Andrew, and Cam, and the boys, and. They played some great stuff. They got off to a superb start, a couple of road games, tough road games, and, and then to open up at home on, on that perfect pitch over there. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's privilege and, and, and exciting to be out there. And, and I someone speaking to me the other day about um, one of the um, Timbers games, and, and I just go into fan mode. T- Timbers or T2, I just get into fan mode. I don't get to experience that as much anymore, and I'm, I'm in the best city to to be a fan. And it's the same when they're playing at home. When I get to watch Timbers at home, um, you know, people say maybe I'm maybe I'm not a real coach. Some people say real coaches find it hard to switch off. I love switching off and just enjoy the game and get into it and not think and not think about tactics or players and this and that. So it was great to do that for T2 the other day. And, um, yeah, I took some friends. Um, one's a big football guy and one's not a football guy. Well, actually, my wife's brother-in-law who's not a football guy. And, and for three of us to be enjoying that goal and high-fiving was cool. So well done to him, well done to the team, to a great start. And excited to see them continue moving forward. With your season, uh, looking ahead to, to this NWSL season, we've asked you a lot uh, sort of in the scrums after practice about you know how you deal with the national team absences. Um, but we haven't really asked you as well. You know, you're also starting on the road because of this construction at Providence Park. So you have the, the six games on the road to start probably at a time when you might have had some national team players still available. And then you come back uh, at home and are going to be missing the national team players. How are you navigating that aspect of the schedule as well and making sure the group's prepared to not only have players coming in and out, but also be starting with this extended road trip? Yeah, I think at the end of that, that six-game road trip, there's there's a huge carrot and huge motivation um, to get back home into into Providence Park with the new stand. Um, I, I mean, it's going to be hard. I, 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 of course, always try to have optimism and, and positivity, and, and I'll get to that, but it's going to be a huge challenge. And, of course, once um, a few curveballs come in, those challenges get bigger, whether the curveballs are... Um, a knock with a player or uh, a result that that didn't go your way, things will get tougher. Uh, I I'm I'm looking at it extremely excited that we have this huge challenge at the beginning. Um, we've always felt when when we're faced with adversity that we find our best, and it's something we actually want to improve. We don't want to just find our best when we're facing adversity. Can we find our best every day, every week, every game? And our, our recipe right now, and it's, it's, I mean, I'd say it's how we've always set ourselves, but we're really zoning in. Um, to be our best every game day, 
we have to be at our best, not drop a single standard during the week, every day, every week. Um, there was a moment last year where we playing really well but drop points uh, against teams. I remember Washington home, Utah away. Um, there's a few other games in there as well that we we felt we'd done enough to win. And I think it was Sink that got every Sink and Tobin got everyone in and and just demanded supported everyone but demanded a little bit more it was the closest the group's ever been off the field and we were playing well but mistakes were letting us down and they made it clear that that what we what we do every day in training adds up to game day and and I think that that helped us during that period and and we're zoning in right now to to make sure that that's the standard um so yeah it's six away games but I'm I'm sorry what I was saying was excited that adversity is there and we get to go out and really grind and really get after it and build our character, build our toughness. And the the carrot at the end of it is, yeah, we got obviously come back and we played um, Chicago at home that first game. But the last 14 games, 10 at home, two in Utah, two in Seattle. That's an incredible schedule to finish the season. Now, it isn't incredible if we don't have some points on the board. Um, uh, but I'm, I mean, first day I spoke to the team about it that, the, the, the huge job before that yeah it's it's big but I think this is what brings out the best in us and if we can get good points on the board entering those 14 games where we only you know and the, the good thing about Utah and Seattle is we leave the day before Utah it's a short flight we get to train in Portland then we leave so it's it's four short the shortest trips um, mixed amongst those home games so um, yeah put the seatbelt on it's going to be a ride for sure and, and we're up for that and, and right now the way the group are, are reacting to being pushed and the way they're pushing each other, I think um, there's going to be a few ups and downs, but I think we're going to have a, a better start to the year than we have previously. Results, I thought last year was okay, the first four, but performance-wise, we continue to improve how we start because we're always a little bit slow. The way they're training at the moment and the mental approach to learning and growing has um, given us confidence that, that we can be in a good place. How much do you look at what the Timbers are going through now and try to infer lessons that you can apply to your start of the season? Well, I, I think I'd look at this both ways. If Timbers uh, were absolutely flying, I think it's, it's got, it's, we've got to be careful not to try to ride that wave with them because it's not our wave. And, um, of course, enjoy that. But in, you know, we're in the same building in the workplace. If they were flying and, and the vibe obviously is... is um, is a certain vibe when that's happening we've got to stay very very focused on our objectives we've got to stay very focused on what we're doing day by day same here you know they've they've had um, a couple of bad results and we've got to stay very focused on what we're trying to do and um, so so strangely try not to get zoomed in too much I don't I, I think we talked about it a couple of weeks ago or maybe just before we started I think that's, that's one of the the challenges of being in the same building we have enough emotions as a team. We go through enough ups and downs as a team, but it's positive and negative from T2 and Timbers. If they were both flying, we don't want to get caught on that because it's not our reality. And, and, and I think we could lose focus. We've got to be able to control what we're trying to control. And yeah, so right now um, it, it's the exact same that let's, where are we at? What are we trying to achieve? Um, but for a couple of hours a week, really get to, to, to put the fan, the jersey on and be a fan and support them and, in every way we can and um, and they're, they're fantastic at doing the same for us you obviously as a coach came up through sort of the academy system sort of developing players and that seems to be something that you really enjoy as a coach do you feel like you have more of an opportunity to sort of focus 
on that aspect this year while you're having so many you know veterans established players leaving and you're going to have I mean obviously some somewhat established players here but but as well a lot of younger players that are, are coming along yeah for sure and and I think it's a passion of our staff um incredible staff with Rich Sophie Gargan and, and Nadine on the technical side I think if you look at all of us there's a huge passion to support people but support support sync um, support the young guns and support everyone in between seeing players grow seeing players improve individually collectively is is what it's all about for us um, talking to talking to one of the players grabbing coffee the other a uh, couple of weeks ago we got into a bit of a deep chat and talked about what what drives us and yeah I think my and I've thought about it a couple of times in the last couple of years um, and it's normally around the time where we see an individual doing really well um, in many in many years when I'm talking to the grandkids or, or whoever will listen to me at that point in my, and sitting in my chair with my cup of tea, I can see myself not talking about team results or team trophies. I, I'll have pictures of individuals and I, and I can predict myself going, this player achieved this and this player did that and this player did this for their country and for their club. Um, people that I've had relationships with and, and been a part of the journey. I'm, yeah, huge passion to seeing people um, not just the players, but also the coaches and and people, um, non-technical staff around the team, seeing people be the best, have the have the support to be the best, have the tools to be the best, and you know I'm I'm very fortunate to be in an environment where I'm surrounded by uh, management and an owner that wants the best for me and the staff and the players, um, always supporting us the best way they can, and I'm trying to fe- keep that keep that going with everyone who I come in contact with. Um, but yep this year I think um, no different to any other year that we will have players that we're trying to develop I think we've always done that it, it, in the off season we were preparing for the draft if you look at look at our our draft the non-contract players um, sorry not non-drafted players that we've brought in as non-contract players I think there's three four five of them at the moment they're on contract and um, uh, we've done a good job of identifying character I think of course talent talent helps but um, the fact that they weren't drafted and there's multiple of them still here I think we did a good job of finding some good people and um, I think we've shown good commitment to trying to support them and at the same time and the same message to them that I think we do a good job of trying to help them and support them but it's down to them they're, they're in the driving seat and the ones that are here right now are, are really taking advantage of that and this year so it's no different to any other year we're trying to develop players. This year they're just going to get more playing time, they're going to get more opportunity on the pitch, which is um, really, really exciting. I mean, these years are so challenging, but at the same time, 15, 16 and even 17 with the Euros, um, I've enjoyed I've enjoyed that challenge and I've enjoyed seeing young players get opportunity. Um, I went for a World Cup year with a different team and the challenge was actually when everyone came back um, we we got into a great place with the with the group, the young group that was still in market for multiple months while the World Cup players were away, and the challenge was when when everyone come back in and and they're coming from four or five different head coaches, four or five different ideas, and um, my mistake is I didn't I don't think I handled that transition well enough, um, and also I think there's players that were were doing their jobs to such a high level that some of them should have continued playing. And I'm going to take those lessons, obviously, into this year where managing those transitions of, of being in and out um, better 
and and making sure that that when that period of the season comes, the best the best players for the team to succeed will be on the pitch. And yeah, we got to get it wrong a few times to be able to get it right. Um, so we'll be ready for that. Are there lessons you take from, or, or positives you take from 2016? When obviously the Olympics is not, uh, players don't usually miss as much time as they're going to probably miss for the World Cup. But you guys win a shield that year, your first year here in, in Portland. Are there positives you take out of that in, in trying to now navigate this year with the World Cup? Yeah, I think I think positives and lessons uh, from that period. I think there's lessons every year. I think it's, every year we've got players coming in and out of. Uh, the team and the club through international call-ups and uh, sixth, seventh season. Um, yeah, I'm not sure how many seasons it's been, but I don't think I'll ever stop wanting to improve or, or learning how to manage those transitions better. Uh, there's no way I'm going to master that if I'm doing this for 20, 30 years because every individual is different, every national team is different, their environment um, I mean, this this preseason, I think we got off to a great start, and, and internationals coming back from um, enjoyable camps and enjoyable environments. And our, it was the first training session. Uh, we got into um, a bit of a tactical session, and just trying to lay down some ideas, basic ideas. And I remember I pulled him at one point, and I was just giggling away. I said, "Guys, um, uh, I know you have your U.S. ideas. I know you have your Canadian ideas, and..." Cell's still hiding that French passport somewhere. She's probably got some French ideas, but this is about Portland Thorns' ideas. And um, we had a little chuckle in the sense of, yeah, we're all. We, it was the first day, and we're all on different pages and and trying to reinforce the message that you know this is Thorns and this is what we're trying to do. This is what we're trying to achieve. And and the cool thing is, it's it's always built around bringing the best qualities of our individuals out. Um, and us trying to find that balance is always the challenge, but. Yeah, I mean, we we really dived into that in the off season. I think we're we're proud and um, uh, give ourselves a pat on the back that we do try to build everything around the quality of our individuals and their strengths and what they bring to backline or the midfield or in goal or up front. And uh, it's no different this year. But it was, yeah, I think there'll be a few reminders through the season when they come in that, that here we go, Thorn Soccer, get back to it and and back to Thorn's ideas that. I say the staff, it's not just being staff that have developed what playing like a thorn is or playing for the Portland Thorns. These players, you know, the, the groups, the core group's been together now for, for multiple years. They've been a, a huge part of that process. Um, I think we're at, the be- we're at our best when staff and players are, are evolving the team together and pushing the team forward together. I've become uh, a better coach every week, every month, that while I'm willing to listen and and be open to players ideas um so together i think uh to being working together and collaborating is the key for us it's where our best success has come in the past success always leaves crumbs and we we want to make sure we take some of those lessons and continue to move forward Thanks again to Mark Parsons for coming on the show. Always really great to hear his perspective. One, one thing that really interests me about just uh, that conversation is um, Mark talking about, you know, when he, uh, in the future, he's going to be sitting there with his cup of tea and talking to his grandkids. It's not going to be about, look at all the trophies that the team I coached won, but it's going to be about, look at these individual success stories. And uh, I didn't have a chance to ask Mark there, but it... Um, there really are some really amazing success stories that have come 
through the thorns and, and Mark Parsons has been behind. I mean, I think Haley Rosso is the, the number one on that list, uh, a player who uh, was waived by Washington after Mark Parsons left and Mark brought her to Portland and she's excelled here and has excelled uh, now with the Australian national team, obviously coming back from an injury. Um, but Celeste Bourget coming in, you know, earning that starting spot in midfield last year. Uh, I think Mark's going to have some really good success stories later on to tell his grandkids. This is what Mark is known for amongst his peers in the NWSL, his ability to develop these kind of players. And I was thinking about it yesterday up at Merlot. On the field, you had Christine Sinclair, Sam Kerr, Lindsey Horan, Julie Ertz, Tobin Heath, all of these immense, immense talents. I mean, there was certainly no other place in the world you could have seen as talented a collection of women's soccer players yesterday than at Merlot Field. And Celeste Bure was right there competing with all of them. Somebody who wasn't drafted, somebody that had to completely make herself into what she is now, and somebody that looks as comfortable on that field as anybody. I think that's remarkable, and I think Mark Parsons has every right to sit back and kind of think about how he contributed to uh, helping Celeste craft a career for herself. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned uh, the game at Merlot uh, on Sunday. Uh, the Thorns opened their preseason by beating the Chicago Red Stars 2-1. to one. Uh, They'll continue their preseason Wednesday against the U.S. U-23 women's national team. And then on Saturday against the Reign, they'll close out the preseason tournament. But um, just looking at, at Sunday's game, what, what were sort of your takeaways from the match? That it felt very much like a preseason game. <laughs> Things were pretty mechanical, uh, and then they got a little bit rough after a while, after Chicago kind of tried to get into the game. Uh, Julie Ertz is just a wrecking ball in midfield. Uh, it's kind of cool to watch, but at the same time, if you're not physically up to her level, you're going you're gonna to feel it. Um, from the Thorns' perspective, I thought it was interesting um, just looking at the way they, they were able to attack the space behind the Chicago Red Stars' defense. I thought they did that pretty effectively, even if the end product wasn't there. The way they were building attacks down their left side, um, utilizing Tobin Heath there. And then also just the way that they were kind of very consciously and in a controlled way pressing Chicago or um, steering Chicago's play and forcing them into decisions that maybe they didn't want to make. I thought those were all interesting things, and I'm going to be looking to see how those things hold up. Uh, What about you? Yeah, I thought you sort of pointed to it, but I I thought the Thorns, especially in the first half, were putting themselves in really good positions in and around the box. And they they were getting – they were – getting to the point where they had the perfect shot on goal and, and then they were kicking the shot uh, wide or, or straight at the goalkeeper. That, 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 last, that shot wasn't there. Um, but that seems like a you're early in preseason type thing that can get worked out. The fact that they were getting in those spots, I think, was really exciting um, because they were doing it uh, with regularity. Uh, I think in the second half, uh, and maybe that's a fitness thing uh, early in preseason to some degree, but I, I think Chicago was the better team in the second half. It, it sort of shifted, uh, and the Thorns probably aren't that happy about the performance in the second half, even though they did ultimately get uh, the game-winning goal. Um, it's preseason. I, I think it's game one of preseason. Uh, like I've said so many times on this podcast, I, I don't want to take too much away from yeah. preseason at all. Um, but, yeah, exciting moments in the first half, and, and uh, things to learn from, really, in the second half. And for me, one of the bigger takeaways was going to be Tobin Heath versus Casey Short. Um, Tobin Heath was came into that game in the early minutes of the game just domineering. But I also... Almost every time I watch her, I have an appreciation for just the one-on-one defender Casey Short is. I don't know why she isn't getting more time with the national team, but I I thought to myself, even though it was preseason, there's probably nobody in this league I would rather 
have to if I had to match up with Tobin Heath one on one, there's nobody else in this league I would rather do it than Casey Short and you know, Tobin Heath played a big part in both goals. She forced the corner kick and took the for- corner kick on the first one, uh, and then she set up Christine Sinclair for the second one. But credit to Casey Short, as good as Tobin Heath was yesterday, I thought she was probably the best player on the field yesterday. She really didn't have a ton of success against Casey Short, and uh, I just thought that was kind of a uh, a high-level matchup to be seeing for Game 1 of the preseason. We did get some questions, though, Jamie, uh, from listeners Jeffrey asked about one of the new faces in the 11 yesterday. Uh, Gabby Seiler looks like the real deal. A few bad passes, but overall looked fast and dynamic. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I was first of all impressed that she performed as well as she did at center back, which is not a position she played um, in college and not a position that um, when the Thorns drafted her that they were talking about using her in. So that was a different position for her. Um, clearly, I mean, obviously, I'm sure she's been training in that position, but um, I was impressed to see that. I, I thought she looked solid, and, and I, I think that's a, a good thing to see a player coming in and looking solid in that environment. You named all the uh, top-level players on that pitch. To, to be able to go in there and look solid in, in your first game, I, I think that's a good sign. So I, I think she's likely a player that, that Thorns fans are going to see more of, um, especially after that performance. She seems like a player that is certainly at least gunning for one of those roster spots. Yeah, I mean, Siler has been playing a lot of central defense in preseason, but honestly, until yesterday, I thought that was mostly because of injuries and absences. I thought they were just kind of having to make up the numbers, and because of her versatility, it made sense to play her in central defense during those training sessions. Obviously, there was something more to it, and with Emily Menges unavailable yesterday, Gabby Siler got the call, and I, I can't think of anything negative to say about her performance. And for me, in these games when you're seeing new talents, the things that I look for are one, are they physically able to compete with players at this level? And two, their composure. And I thought both of those elements were there for Gabby Seiler. Um, Whenever you see a center back that's a little bit shorter, you do wonder about the long-term viability of it. But I think we've seen over the last 12, 15 years, the ability to play with the ball at your feet as a center back is becoming just as important as the ability to win the ball in the air. And she certainly looked very composed and um, willing to willing to play with the ball at her feet. I'm willing to take some chances, go upfield with the ball, and uh, I thought it was very good. Uh, Let's go to the next question. Emma, any thoughts on using Sonnet as a six? And then who had the best outing in this preseason match? So uh, Sonnet is a six. I know this would make Emily Sonnet happy. Yeah, I I mean, I think think it's an option. I I just don't see the Thorns right now having a better center back pairing uh, than Sonnet and Menges when they're they're completely healthy and, and... Um, have all their players here and and so I wouldn't assuming that you both those players are playing their best because we've seen I I think at times on it last year had some errors in in, at center back but when those players are playing the best I think they're one of the best center back pairings in the league and I wouldn't want to disrupt that Um, but I I think it's an option she's shown that she can do it and and so I think that's sort of something that Mark Parsons maybe has in his back pocket but I, I don't really see that as something that that we're going to see in terms of who had the best outing, I thought Tobin Heath looked great. Um, I, I think, like I said, it was more exciting to sort of see a player like Siler um, being putting in a solid performance at center back just because that's a new player that we haven't really seen. Um, but Tobin Heath looks like she's at the top of her game and was involved in uh, both the Thorns goals, obviously. Yeah, Tobin Heath doesn't really look like she's in preseason mode, even though much of that match looked like it was in preseason yeah. mode. So maybe that's part of the reason it looked like every time she got the ball, she was going to do something dangerous with it. But um Tobin Heath kind of looks like that in regular season games, too. Uh, Speaking of Tobin Heath, uh, we have another question from Kay Gray. What are your thoughts on Tobin Heath and Lindsey Horan's connection on the field from 2016 to now? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's grown, and I think it's been a huge part of the Thorns' success. I, I think both those players, um, obviously Tobin went through injuries, came back, and has, I, I think, been at her best, has been playing her best soccer. I, I think we had another question on that that didn't seem to make it onto my sheet here about how good Tobin Eats been since coming back from injury. I, I think she's at the top of her game. She's one of the best players in the world right now, and I think Lindsay Horan has grown a lot um, just in the time that she's been in Portland. I, I mean, she's still young, and this is going to be mo- knock on wood and everything, but she's going to be her first World Cup this year. Uh, Lindsay Rand is still young, and that's sort of easy to forget because it feels like she's now been a huge part of the women's soccer scene for, for a while now. It's only been a few years. So I think both of those players, uh, I think Lindsay Rand's grown a lot. I think Tobin Heath is, got, is playing her best soccer, and, and I think just the chemistry of them. They've known each other, obviously, for a while, have played together for a long time, but... Um, They've both gone better, and the chemistry has just grown as they've played uh, with the Thorns longer. Yeah, and it, I guess it's hard to tell whether this is just a product of Lindsey Horan's natural progression as a player yeah. or Tobin Heath just staying healthier for longer periods of time as it is as much a product of some kind of chemistry between them. I mean, this just might be the natural progression between them. Because when I watch them play, even though they obviously have a long history together um, from the national team and they have the connection from uh, France and everything, um, I guess a very limited UNC connection to a very, very limited UNC connection, um, I don't really look at them and go, wow, they have such amazing chemistry. I, I look at them as the same way I do other players. Like, I don't think Lindsay and Tobin have any more chemistry than... Lindsay and Christine Sinclair or Tobin and Christine Sinclair. Um, but I do think that Lindsay's natural progression and then Tobin just turning into this incredibly, incredibly persuasive player um, is going to make them both look amazing, of course. Uh, Donna asks our last question. Are the U.S. women's national team players out for the rest of the preseason tournament? And what about the other internationals? Yeah, Mark uh, told us last week that, yes, the U.S. women's national team players are going to be out for the rest of the tournament. Uh, Yesterday was uh, Sunday was their last game. Um, But he said that he expected the rest of the internationals to be here through the entire tournament. So I I think the expectation... Um, is that Haley Rosso uh, could be in this Wednesday game. Caitlin Ford has not yet arrived uh, in Portland. Mark Parsons said that uh, after Sunday's game, but the expectation was that she would be here this week, uh, and if she got here in time, she would feature in Wednesday's game, if not Saturday. That sounded like either a visa or a passport yeah. issue. They're just sort of working through some paperwork stuff to get her here. Yeah. Um, but it's within a few days she'll be here. Yeah, it's not an injury or a fitness yeah, concern no. or anything like that. It's just a... It's just a paperwork to play to work in another country <laughs> issue yeah. that uh, actually happens more often than people know uh, but it's also happening right now to caitlin ford jamie it's your favorite time of the show where you get to go on record with your <laughs> forecasts your prognostications your glimpse into the future the future that we're seeing right now is sunday's game timbers in the la galaxy jamie what is your prediction yeah, I haven't been super optimistic in these predictions, and unfortunately, I've also not been super wrong. <laughs> um, and so I'm going to stick with that for now. Uh, we'll see if the Timbers can prove that they're turning a corner, but I haven't clearly seen that yet. And I think it, w- it would be unfair to predict otherwise, given what we've seen, given that Larry Smobial is out, given that this is a hard game uh, in general. I'm going to predict a 2-1 loss. So I I think the way I'm looking at it is the Timbers are going to put in a better performance. There's going to be signs of progress, uh, but it's not going to be enough to get a result against a good Galaxy team on the road. Uh, yeah, on the road at, at a point when the Timbers have are trying to are coming off some bad results. So last game, I predicted Andy Polo will get on the score sheet. 
and he didn't start. So yeah, the whole point of this is your predictions are supposed to be closer to truth. Right, right. <laughs> uh, so I kind of feel like whatever I predict might have a bit of a cursed effect. <laughs> Um, at the same time, with players coming and going for international breaks or other reasons, I don't know what effect that's going to have on Giovanni Savarese's lineup decisions. Are there players that will come back in the middle of this week that he might hold out just because they haven't been with the team for the whole couple of weeks and maybe they can still come off the bench? The reason I set it up like that is my instinct is to say Jeremy Abobasi scores a goal on Sunday. But is it possible that Lucas Milano gets another start because Lucas Milano has been here the whole time and Jeremy Abobasi has been flying back and forth to, from here in Spain and playing with the U23 national team? And even beyond any kind of matchup considerations, it might just be about, hey, let's not subject Jeremy Abobasi to 90 minutes after he's been traveling between continents. Whatever. I'm going with Jeremy Abobasi <laughs> scores a goal on Sunday. Yeah, I think, I mean, we'll see. There, there's a few players that I think we sort of predicted would be in the starting lineup uh, that are dealing with those travel concerns this week. So I, I'm not sure that the Timbers can leave them all off of the lineup or <laughs> yeah. that would be a good idea. I mean, um, they could. They but could. Is that, what you, sure. is that what you want, Jamie? Yeah, I'm not sure if that'll be a good idea. So um, I think that prediction makes sense. We'll see if it happens. Uh but for now, um, those are predictions. We have the fantasy update. Uh, looks like some teams are staying the, about the same from last week. In third place, we have Real Lasky, Lasico. Uh, that's Perez. Wait, what, what was I that? I don't know. I said it wrong, I think. <laughs> Real Alasco. Jalisco? Alisco. There we go. Sometimes my brain just doesn't work <laughs> it, wow that was amazing i think you said ex laxico no i didn't i, I didn't say at, oh whatever. that's true but I, I it was the end of the word that, that oh, stopped okay. me a little bit um <laughs> gotta work on my pronunciation maybe <laughs> i should have you uh state these but mm. uh in second place we have crowder's mug club that's xavier and in first place we have timbers beast uh that is mac f and that is all for today um, next week we'll have uh, the LA Galaxy game to talk about obviously and more predictions to make we'll have a bye week but until then you can find us every week on OregonLive.com Footy, and Timbers.com you can also subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher and until next week take care <laughs>